This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to Tennis Podcast. Well, after that marvellous weekend looking back on 1999, we are ready for a new millennium here on the Tennis Podcast. As part of Roland Garros Relived, we're going back to 2001. Catherine, how was your 2001? Um, well, if the parents' photo album is anything to go by, not a vintage year. <laughs> Any particular reason? or um, I'm not sure, like 14... 15 is ever a great age for girls. I can't say I came out of it too well, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, the, I think the best photo I can find of that that period is from my... That was probably the peak of my ice skating days. That was probably... The ice rink was probably where I was least awkward in life, circa 2001. I, yeah, I was... It was a, an epic year for coming fourth in ice skating competitions, <laughs> as I recall. All right. That was my specialty. Matt, meanwhile, was utterly adorable. Yeah, annoying. <laughs> five, were you, Matt? Yeah, living my best life, aged <laughs> four and five. <laughs> Splendid. Splendid. He was, he okay. was a blonde. Yeah. He was, yeah. We've got the photos to prove it. We'll see if we can persuade somebody to let us post one of them. Um, but we've seen them, <laughs> and they're great. Uh, so, yeah, we're we're going back in time to 2001 to remember the Roland Garros final between Kim Clijsters and Jennifer Capriati. Um, the year in general, well, obviously, it is remembered as a whole for 9-11, more than just about any other news story that year. Um, lots of other things happened that year as well. iTunes was released, Wikipedia went online, and the iPod started being produced. Did you have your first iPod in uh, 2001, Catherine? Or were you still on Sony Walkman <laughs> or whatever it was? <laughs> You don't even know what a Sony Walkman is, do you? I do know what a Sony Walkman is. I'm just... Cassettes. That that was the most partridge list of uh, world events 
yet. <laughs> well, they happened. I mean, I can only go with what I happened. Like I can't make it up. You're going to ask me who invented the skip in a minute. <laughs> who invented the skip? <laughs> oh, Do you have that answer to hand or not? No. No. Okay. No, it's a, it's a partridge not? reference. I don't know. If I, at some stage of my life, I had a Sony Walkman and an iPod and a mini disc player in, in between. Right. Okay, thanks for the information. Um, I'll go and look up the skip info later, folks, and let you know tomorrow. Uh, so also back in 2001, Kim Kleisters had turned 18 the day before what would be her first Grand Slam final. Jennifer Capriati was 25. She'd won the Australian Open a few months earlier, her first Grand Slam title, and she was going for the second leg of the Grand Slam. But really, that only tells the merest smidgen of her story, and it is that story we are going to tell here on the Tennis Podcast. Because it is just like something out of a movie, quite honestly, Catherine. I mean, it's in. I think we all knew this story vaguely. We knew details. We knew how she'd had the early promise and, and the, the difficulties in her life and, and, and won again and, and ended up in this final in 2001 but i think looking into it more deeply has has been a real eye-opener for us hasn't it i mean what a what a life she has had for somebody who at that stage was still only 25 yeah and in the final that that uh we just watched much of at the uh, 2001 french open was playing the the young talent um you know she'd already yeah. she'd already passed the baton on to a to a new generation kim closes had just turned 18 the day before i think and yet she'd kind of been absent for the for the baton passing hadn't she she'd been away from the sport battling injury and and demons and everything it's possible to battle really and and that she still managed to come back and make herself relevant is incredibly, incredibly impressive. It's mm. it's a shame that the story doesn't end there. Really, that it's not a a rise, fall, and rise again. Um, it's not that simple, unfortunately. But at the at the time we were watching in two thousand and one, that was the story: rise, fall, yeah. and and reemergence. Yeah, because if you go back eleven years in time when she was just 13 years of age, she played a tournament, her first tournament on the Pro Tour in Florida, age 13, beating Natalie Tozier 6-4-6-2, who had been the French Open semi-finalist that year, Tozier. She also beat Helena Sukova 6-1-6-4, who was another player who'd been in the world's top five. She was on the cover of Sports Illustrated at the age of 13, was Capriati, with the caption, the headline, and she's only 13. Uh, because of that triumph for, that she'd had on her way to uh, to that to that final uh, in Florida, and her first coach was Tom Gullickson, who was a great doubles player in his own right. He's coached many many players before, and he got introduced to Capriati at a very young age, and this is what he found. I've never ever seen a, a young young girl hit the ball cleaner or have kind of more kind of positive energy on a tennis court than Jennifer. I remember before I started working with her, one of the coaches said, hey, Gully, would you 
he hit a few balls with this young 12-year-old girl and uh, tell me what you think. And I said, sure. And so this little cute, you know, 12-year-old, full of energy girl jumps on the court and we start hitting. And I hit with her for like a half an hour and she didn't miss a ball and she hit every ball right in the center of her racket. And she had this beautiful kind of clean technique and the ball was coming off her racket like the sound of her ball i remember for a 12 year old was phenomenal i mean the power the timing the you know and uh and her i talked to the coach afterward and i said wow this girl is really special good luck with her and then lo and behold you know a couple two two three years two years later i think 14 um you know, they. I was working for the USTA as a national coach, and they uh, they gave half of my year to the Capriati. So I, you know, through the USTA, I worked with Jennifer like twenty six weeks a year for a couple of years, and and uh, yeah, I mean, the first year was phenomenal, and uh, all the excitement around her, and and uh, you know, she was the girl. <laughs> And uh, in in women's tennis, and then in the following year, I think she won like three WTA titles, and then she lost, she beat Martina at Wimbledon, uh, who was a seven or eight time champion in the quarters, and lost to Sabatini in the semis, and then she beat Sabatini at the U.S. Open in a night match in the quarters, and then lost to Monica Seles seven six in the third after serving for the match at 5-4 and 6-5 in the third. And, and, and I think one of the best matches in the history of women's tennis, for sure. I mean, Celis was at the top of her game and the ball striking and taking the ball early. And Jennifer was at the top of her game and an emerging star. And, uh, I mean, the tennis, if you go back and watch some clips of that match, the tennis was phenomenal. And, uh, you know, Jennifer was very unlucky not to win that match. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, she was a, a great girl. And, and uh, it was just uh, a lot of fun working with her. She was so talented. I mean, I could... I could kind of teach her something, you know, working on a tactic or something like taking the second serve and hitting it and coming in and, and she could do it almost right away. I mean, there was very little kind of learning curve or lag time between understanding how to doing something and then the actual doing it. You know, that's kind of the learning curve all that time in between the understanding and the being able to do. And Jennifer's uh, learning curve was very, very short. Meanwhile, Lindsay Davenport was one of her contemporaries. I played exactly one junior tournament with her. And um, that was, I think we were both nine. I believe it was the 12 and under indoors. And no shock, she went on to win it. Um, I think I I lost in the semis. Um, But that was it. I mean, she was on a path that just seemed outrageous even back then. So it was clear how good she was, and she was making waves with everybody. Mary Carrillo, our good friend here on the Tennis Podcast, remembers covering her in a very early French Open. We did a feature at the French Open, at Jennifer's first French Open. 
Uh, and we took her around on a bus and have just, we wanted to see what it was like for this kid to see Paris for the first time. And we were, there's a, a really goofy movie back in the nineties or whatever, whenever this kid watched it about time travelers is goofy. I forget the name of the movie. It was really stupid, but they kept visiting people like, you know, Kings and Queens and presidents and, and so we passed by uh, Napoleon's something with, and I said, "Oh, this is famous. This is the I'm the tour guide on this bus, which is ridiculous, but that's what that's what." And she said, "Oh, Napoleon, the little dead dude," which is what one of these one of these kids in this movie had called Napoleon, um, and it was a classic Napoleon character. And she started going into, I mean, that's how young she was when she played in the beginning, and she was young and she was fresh. And she was had a big, big game. I mean, basically, Chris Everett had played in her last match at the U.S. Open. And the player who had been taught by Chris Everett's dad, by Jimmy Everett, from a very young age in Florida, was Jennifer Capriati. And she, the tour kind of needed a young, fresh face who played like Chrissy and who had plenty of youth and plenty of, uh, I mean, the kid was great. And she loved everything, and she had a terrific first year on the tour, and then it all started weighing down on her. Yeah, it did, but for a while, she was prodigious. She had some fantastic results. She reached the semis of Grand Slam tournaments at the ages of 14 and 15, and included and even won Olympic gold in 1992. But already, I think the cracks were starting to appear at that point. I was watching some of the coverage of her gold medal win against Steffi Graf in Barcelona 1992 this morning. And Chris Everts, even back then, is talking about how she's starting to lose some of her motivation she's starting to rebel a little against some of the things that she's being told tennis players do bear in mind she's still only 16 at that time and actually Matt if you then start to look at her results after that I mean it becomes a a very different tale doesn't it because she went from playing a lot of tournaments to not playing very much at all Absolutely. She only played one match in the 1994 season and not at all in the 1995 season, which means she completely fell off the rankings altogether. Um, And then she had a couple of seasons, 96, 97, where she was trying to make some sort of comeback, but not, not having any results at all. She didn't win any matches at the slams. So she enters the 1998 season having not won a match at a slam for four straight seasons uh, when you consider everything that she'd done you know age 14 15 16 in the slams it's a it's a massive massive drop off mm. so what happened to her let's find out from Lindsay and mary how about being on the cover of some of the magazines she was on the cover of it like 14 years old it was it was really hard for her um i think i was the benefit of kind of seeing that i mean i was playing junior tournaments still in the united states as she's you know trying to win the u.s open and getting to the semis at 14 or 15 so i could kind of see that okay you can be this good and she was an exceptional talent but wow that happened really fast and really young for her she became the breadwinner and she signed these huge contracts and and then she you know she struggled i mean she she didn't you know they i thought that they she was playing too much and she was jumping from time zone to time zone and playing in exos and and just you know she was a she was a kid 
And she missed being a kid, which is why I think this pandemic break is going to help someone like Coco Goff, just so she doesn't have to feel like she's missed out on everything uh, when this finally lifts. Um, she And she had, um, God, she had a big game. She had a, a, a good mind and, you know, she started uh, struggling. She started fighting. This was back in the days where you could play too much tennis uh, if you were a little kid. Uh, you know, the, the tour couldn't stop you from from playing too much. And, you know, any kind of a loss she took very hard. She had, Her dad tried a couple of different coaches. And then if she'd have a good run, I think Stefano Capriati uh, would sort of resent the fact that the coach was getting credit. So the coach would go – like it was a crazy – it's crazy stuff. Jennifer, Jennifer ended up sort of coming back from her own despair and her own issues, her drug issues, and winning a couple of more majors. Um, but it's a she is absolutely the cautionary tale uh, in women's tennis. She is the one that people, oh boy, she was going to be so good. Yeah, it's pretty pretty hard to hear all that, isn't it? About the struggles that she had and, and the reasons for them. And, and yeah, I still find myself thinking, Catherine, what would I do if I were her parents and she was just an immense, prodigious talent and had got this, this incredible athlete on my hands who also seemed to absolutely love playing tennis, seemed to want to do all this, but she's only 13 or 14. It's, it, it's very easy f- f- for someone like me to say, oh, they should have done this or that. But it's, it's not easy, is it? And, and I, I feel for those that were guiding her and her herself. Yeah, and in the, in the full Chris Everett interview, which will be running in, well, uh, about a week's time, um, she talks at, at quite great length she sort of debates with herself on the topic of whether it's actually possible to be a young champion and superstar in the limelight and also be a well-adjusted human being you know it 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 might be that it's simply not not possible to develop a sense of self in in those sorts of circumstances of course you've got this crazy contrast the biggest possible contrast I suppose with with Lindsay Davenport I hadn't realized until I did that interview with Lindsay that they were exactly the same age Davenport and Capriati same birth year and Lindsay Davenport is this outlier in 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 tennis in that she has seemed to always be a completely well-adjusted human being she talks in our interview, which again I'm sure we'll run in full at some point, about how her her parents were as far from pushy as as it could possibly be, and she says, you know, maybe that cost me some success at a young age, but but in terms of what I what I gained on a on a human level, she she wouldn't have things any other way. And of course, you, you've got you've got the kind of sliding doors situation to illustrate what the human cost is, and unfortunately, Capriati is the cautionary tale. It's desperately sad. Yeah, it, it is because, I mean, she she really did go off the rails for a while there. And there was uh, the moment where she was caught with uh, marijuana at a party that she um, she laid on for, for people she thought were friends of hers. And she ended up with a mugshot all over um, the newspapers. And, and it's it's difficult, isn't it, for, for to know who's... Who's responsible when you're you're in your mid to late teens and she starts to become somebody who, in theory, can take control of her own life? Um, her parents are still heavily involved, of course, but 
you know, you are going to get some rebellion. I, I, don't, I don't know how you, how you really handle that. Um, but at the same time, Matt's described the inactivity in the, the, uh, the mid-90s, the late-90s. But then she managed to forge a comeback, which, which in itself was, was really something, wasn't it? I mean, I thought we, we were at endgame of her career in the late-90s. I did not see how she could possibly make a meaningful comeback with the years she'd been out of the game. Um, and yet here she is going into the 99... U.S. Open when she uh, she reached the fourth round. She I remember she read a statement to the press at, at the end of it, basically saying, "You know, I just I just wish people would let me leave me alone a little bit to 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 kind of get used to life and find my way." Um, she says, "You know, I I I've, I was quietly rebellious, but I was never never the sort of person that I was made out to be." Um, and she was just inching away back into her career. Um, she had a run to the semifinals of the Australian Open in 2000 and then wins the 2001 Australian Open. And it really did feel surprising that she managed to make herself a force again. Um, and then here she is, basically the best player in the world. She managed to get to world number one at the end of 2001. And part of that was this French Open that she played in 2001 the final against kim clysters and we've just watched it back it's it's not a vintage match catherine (laughs) it's 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 long it's uh, it's not very good is it (laughs) i think it's the it's the ultimate looks can be deceiving or score lines can be deceiving because on paper it looks like it's gonna be a trip to the northern lights (laughs) yes (laughs) yeah we we were looking at the the scores. I couldn't really remember it that well. We were looking, right, which one are we going to cover? Oh, 12, 10 in the third. Let's cover that. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it was error strewn and it was so nervy, wasn't it? I mean, Kleister's playing in her first Grand Slam final, Capriati trying to win another one, and she served it, I think, three times. Yeah, she, yeah, she served the match three times. Kleister's herself was two points away from winning it four times. It was a very dramatic tense final set but just error ridden just two players with similar game styles coming up against each other and there was just a friction there that led to yeah just not a not a vintage match at all um there are actually some rumors the day before the final that capriati might not play uh because there was rumors circulating that she was injured she'd received treatment um for a knee injury in the semi-final, but she said, "She said uh, I heard someone say I'm not playing. I will be there." So she immediately just shut down those rumours. But it was interesting that she played uh, Hingis in the semi-final of this tournament, just to to move our story of Hingis on a little bit from a couple of days ago. I, um, John Wertheim wrote after Capriati's victory over Hingis in the semis that nobody fears Hingis anymore. And hmm. I think there's something quite striking about Capriati be- beating Hingis. There's some symbolism because Hingis, when she burst onto the scene, was the anti-Capriati in that she seemed to handle being a precocious talent, you know, really well. Um, there was little angst. She won the five Grand Slam titles. And obviously Capriati found that a bit harder. But then... Capriati has this resurgence and now Hingis is struggling 
and Hingis being Hingis gave a gave a little quote that sort of poked the bear a little bit where she said uh, Jennifer's hot right now and she's on top of her game but this is an opportunity she's grabbing because everyone else is injured <laughs> um, oh I want Hingis to come back <laughs> just to do some press conferences yeah but it's interesting how Hingis found kind of adulthood harder to negotiate whereas for Capriati it was those adolescent years of coming onto the tour that she found so difficult so there's an interesting contrast I think between Hingis and Capriati at that time and it's not it's not surprising I don't think that there was perhaps a little little bit of tension oh I haven't unclenched from watching uh (laughs) watching that final it was just so uptight from start to finish, you're waiting for the moment where you'd think, you know, when, when one of them goes down in the score, they're going to loosen up a bit and they, the shoulders are going to relax and they, they're going to start hitting with some freedom. But it just never happens or, or it looks like it's happening for one rally and then it'll all go to pieces. The, the next rally, there'll be some horrible error where the ball doesn't even make it into the tram lines. It's so stuttering and... <laughs> clenched capriati um, won it with 79 unforced errors oh. yeah. i mean and that is the th- a feature of Kleister's, isn't it as well that she's somebody who can look irresistible and then 10 minutes late later look as as bewildered as anybody else in the stadium as she doesn't know why she's i mean we we she was sending balls out left, right, and centre. Regulation shots, just belting them long, <laughs> wide, and seemingly had no way of stopping herself doing it. It's such uncompromising tennis, wasn't it? Both of them, you know, there were periods where both of them were playing pretty horribly, and yet they they refused to <laughs> to to relent with their game styles. There was a period of a couple of sets where Kim Kleisters was just just hitting drop shots every every couple of games maybe even more frequently than that hitting a drop shot and just none of them were successful she was losing every point um she just kept going it's completely uncompromising and, and i'd i'd forgotten how young she was in that match i have to say when when the commentator said at the start that that she had just turned 18 um and obviously compared to Capriati's young success, that's nothing. But she was incredibly young and she had the Belgian royal family sat on the front row for the whole match. I mean, that's that's its own bit of, you know, Sports Illustrated cover type pressure in itself. Can you imagine being being 18 and having the Queen fly over to Paris? <laughs> to sit front row to watch you it's nuts she doesn't like tennis the queen no <laughs> <laughs> she probably refused wow <laughs> um yeah but yeah i mean that would be yeah i mean just just imagine just imagine not to mention leighton hewitt sat there as well we had yesterday when when i was unexpectedly lamenting the relationship breakdown of Andre Medvedev and Anka Huber, which is not something I ever thought I'd find myself doing. We we ended up going down a rabbit hole of discussing sort of Grand Slam memories that are probably quite hard for players to look back on or rewatch <laughs> because they're so um, <laughs> uh, laden with clips of exes. 
and there's, there's quite a lot of Leighton Hewitt uh, in the coverage of that final. And she actually, she thanks him in French in her runners-up speech, Kim Clijsters. She says, thanks to my boyfriend for staying here because uh, he had lost a lot earlier, I think, and he had, you know, it was really good of him to stick around. <laughs> Maybe you have to do like an edited version of, <laughs> of the match. Do you, th- to just do you think and, put the black Andy Roddick has them. a Mandy Moore free cut of uh, US Open final 2003? <laughs> I think there's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> I would. Um, but there we are. Awkward for you to watch, you know, if you were wanting to settle down and watch it with your, your current partner yeah or sudden quick fast forward tough scene to show to your kids (laughs) who's that daddy (laughs) yeah exactly even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. The moment of victory, Capriati goes over and shares a hug with her dad, which is, is moving and... There are all sorts of stories about Stefano um, Capriati, who's no longer with us now. Um, and lots of people have got lots of different opinions. But the the warmth in that moment between the two, and, and in many of the words that you hear Capriati say about her dad, uh, are beyond dispute in terms of how she, she talks about him. Um and she continued her career, did Capriati. I mean, she had a, she'd won two of the four Grand Slams by that time, and she had a decent run at Wimbledon. I mean, it wasn't wasn't like she had one moment in time. She became a real force for two or three years there. Yeah, she was the first player since Monica Seles to win the first two 
slams of the season. Monica Seles had done it in 1992. So Seles, um, Capriati was, yeah, going for the for the calendar slam. She made the semis at Wimbledon and the US Open in the end and then won the Australian Open the following season, defended her title beating Hingis. So, yeah, this was her her second of three Grand Slams in that she ended up with. And when I was watching... Um highlights of this 01 final on YouTube earlier. Um, once it was finished, YouTube auto played onto a match between Capriati and Serena Williams at the 2002 French Open, so the following year. And it was the ESPN build-up and there was a discussion between Pam Shriver and Mary Jo Fernandez and they were talking about the big three. And the big three were Serena, Venus. Actually, Venus was was number one at the time and was guaranteed to finish that French Open as number one. But it was Serena, Venus and Capriati. They were tennis's big three in 2002 and, and tussling all the time. Yeah, because Capriati went on to win the Australian Open for a second year in a row in 2002. And remember those incredible scenes against Hingis where they're wilting in the heat. The 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 heat of that final was like nothing we'd ever seen. And um, I think he's largely credited with being the reason why they brought in a heat rule that player needs to stop at a certain time because Hingis was... Well, it was quite scary watching how how impeded she was. Capriati came through it, managed to win that match. So she's won three Grand Slams. She's the world number one. And she had many more good times after that as well. Some wonderful matches at the US Open. One of the best matches I've ever seen against Justine Ennan. Um, several tussles, as, as you mentioned there, Catherine, with, uh, with Serena Williams. And then I remember... In 2004, she played the US Open. She had a good run there as well. And then she disappeared. She played one more tournament, one more match, and then never played again. There was never a sort of uh, a, a really pleasant retirement ceremony or anything like that. She she just injured her shoulder and was unable to come back. And uh, and it was it was sad. She she disappeared from the tennis scene altogether. She did make a, a brief appearance um after being inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame, uh requested that Monica Seles uh introduced her in that ceremony and it was it was really quite moving to watch that she she said at the time that it's tough having to leave the game when i did it wasn't my choice it's like mourning a loved one um and it's not easy to to do something like that for your whole life and then realize it's gone and you can't do it anymore it it took me a long time to accept that and um and i'm not sure she ever has. Let's uh, let's hear again from Lindsay Davenport and Marie Carrillo. I, I'm I'm grateful that she was able to achieve and get her slams and get those titles because I she deserved them. I mean, she was that good. Um, it wasn't easy for everyone to put all the pieces of the puzzle together, and she was dealt a very tough hand um, by being so good. Again, so young. Um, the people around her maybe didn't have a lot of experience in kind of handling it. Okay, what's best for our 14, 15, 16-year-old right now? And that is, that's hard. That's that's hard for anyone to kind of handle. Um, and again, I think because of that and because of maybe a lot of people making decisions for her because she was so young, she didn't know how to make decisions later on for herself. And that has kind of led to... Um, 
things not maybe going perfectly for her when, when tennis ended also. I think I told you I saw um, Jennifer's mom at Chris Ebert's sister's funeral this spring. And it was good catching up with Denise Capriati because she had to live through all of that and through a divorce and through the struggles of this kid. And I asked after Jennifer, of course, and she just, she got this sad look on her face. And she said that Jennifer continues to struggle. She lives in Florida, but Denise hasn't, you know, she's, she's kind of pulled away from everybody. The loss of her father a couple of years ago really, really hurt her. Um, and uh, I think it sounds to me like she's suffering from depression. So I don't know that she, you're going to be able to get in contact with her. Even when she got inducted into the Tennis Hall of Fame, uh, there was a genuine concern that she wasn't ready to come out and give a speech in Newport, Rhode Island that summer. She wasn't sure she was up to it. Um, and then she did, and she did a great job. There was a lot to Jennifer, and there's a lot to her story, and it's it's a pity that uh, I hope she's getting all the help that she deserves to get, that she needs to get. I, I worry about her. I, I genuinely liked her. I had issues with her father. He once tried to sue me. Uh, a little aside, a little aside for <laughs> for <laughs> a defamation of character. He didn't like what I said about him on the air. Um, you know, look, we 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 we've seen all of this in the years we've been covering tennis at the same time. At a certain point, you think, God, if only she kicked that coach loose. Just kick him to the curb and get somebody else. This is unhealthy. This is toxic. This is, you know, I guess I felt that you watch that and you think it's almost like watching it in slow motion. Like, isn't anybody going to, is anyone going to step in here? And she had some good people around her. Don't get me wrong. She had good people who saw it. But at a certain point, you can't always, that doesn't always make a difference. It's bittersweet, isn't it, Catherine? Because she had so many special moments in her career on the court that she enjoyed and that we enjoyed as tennis viewers. Um, and yet to think that she's not happy now is 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 a real shame. It's really sad to, to hear that story. Yeah, and, and another little story that... Um that Mary told was about bumping into her a few, a few years ago. Um, she said a good 10 years after she'd, she'd been on the tour um, or, or that she'd last been active on the tour. She bumped into her in Manhattan just by total chance. And she said, Jennifer was still talking about coming back or wanting to come back. She said she'd, she'd just had, I think a second shoulder surgery and she was hoping to get back into training. And I find I find the the injury aspect to the story particularly sad because it's just it's another example of how agency's been taken away from her. Yeah, that's something she referenced as well as as being something really tough for her to take. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that struck Matt as well. And it's it's incredibly difficult because ordinarily, you know, a thirteen year old girl, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, or boy, you you shouldn't be making all your choices for yourself. I've never done parenting, but I'm glad that my parents didn't let me make all my decisions for myself age 13, because who knows where I'd be. But then you've got this completely strange situation where she's being thrust into an adult world and being treated like an adult in so many ways. You know, Mary referenced her being the breadwinner from the fam for the family and you know, playing all these exhibitions and so on. And so you're sort of being 
you've got the expectations of an adult, but not the agency of an adult um, and no opportunity to, to develop a sense of self. So to go through that and then to sort of come through it to an extent and become a champion in the way that she did. And, and hopefully during that period, she did develop a sense of self and a sense of agency to then have it taken from her by, by injury um, is really tragic. And I find that, that, that story of her sort of still hoping to be able to come back 10 years later. Um, it's the, it's that P word again. It's, it's pathos and it's just getting to me. Yeah, I mean, her story is so pathos heavy. And, you know, when you look at that Sports Illustrated cover at 13, you, you kind of want to be excited about it. This, In a way, it is exciting. But I just, I just can't help but feel whenever I look at that cover and whenever I think about the Jennifer Capriati story, I can't detract the kind of what if scenario what if she hadn't had all that exposure so young um how different her life might have been i think um you know she had her life mapped out for her so young um and she she may have thought that was what she wanted she did enjoy it but she couldn't possibly have really known and um you know i think normally Normally we get to make the big decisions in our life that veer us off in different paths as an adult. And if if something goes wrong, we can then kind of take ownership of them, as you were saying. Um, and she she can't do that. Um, I've heard I've heard other child prodigies talk talk about not knowing the answer to that question. Daniel Radcliffe is the one who I've heard most recently talk about it. He had some troubles with alcoholism after after doing the harry potter films and he says he'll never know the answer why why did i have those problems was it because of potter was it just because of who i was and he has to live with that now and capriati well there does seem to be a direct cause for her problems it does seem to be fairly cause and effect with what she was going through but she just must wonder whether it was all worth it as you said she had these great highs on a tennis court but so many lows and you know she the price she paid for her young stardom is is the rest of her life um and that's that's very tough to take especially when she didn't have much for say in the matter being so young and yeah i just i find it incredibly difficult it, it certainly makes me um cautious when we talk about Coco Golf, mm. it has over the last year and, and it's really this story I, di I didn't know it as in depth as I know it now having researched it with you both as we just have but it, it's always given me that uneasy feeling and as as well as I think his parents are do her parents are doing in order to try to to, to make it work for her it, it's just that age it's just so young yeah and it's funny when I was um I did a Google image image search for Jennifer Capriati earlier to try and uh, have a look at that Sports Illustrated cover, which of course came up as one of the first results. But I'd say about 20% of the image results were pictures of Coco Goff, um, you know, which tells you something about how uh, Google algorithms are, are assessing the, the association 
between those two. Now there is there is no there is no reason to compare them um, at this stage, other than the bare facts of their age and talent and long may that may the, remain the case and as you say the the signs are really good for for coco golf and the people she has around her and the head she has on her shoulders but but you know even with those things in place the force the force of that exposure um and pressure it, it could could potentially be too much for for all of those good things to withstand so i think it's it's right that we have a long memory with this and that we treat jennifer capriati as a as a cautionary tale and i know that that is a is a dampener on some of the the party but better that we take that small hit now than are than are talking about coco golf or anyone else in these terms in in 20 years time yeah quite right Quite right. Catherine, Matt, uh, it's, it's been an emotional one to talk about and um, one that I feel is important as well for us to have covered. I've always wanted to look more deeply into the career of Jennifer Capriati because I knew there was so much there to be discovered. And uh, thanks to Lindsay Davenport, Mary Carrillo and Tom Gullickson for helping us to tell that story. And um, we wish her well. I've never yeah. had the chance to mm. speak to her. Um, it just as you know, exactly the sentiments reflected by um, by Mary and Lindsay, and I'm sure Tom as well. Um, we we really wish her well. Yeah, and that's definitely something that comes across in speaking to all of them. A- anybody you ask within tennis circles, they they wish her the best. They want good things for her because I think I think Mike Dixon wrote Capriati's is a tale filled with pathos one of a likable and extremely talented individual pulled in every direction while hopelessly ill-equipped to deal with it and you know she she deserves hopefully some happy years ahead so good luck to her um and thank you to you for for listening to the tennis podcast hope you're enjoying our Roland Garros relived series of podcasts what we got tomorrow we have 2002 Serena versus Venus Williams. Oh, fantastic. The other two are the big three. Mm. <laughs> yeah, right, quite right. Well, it's going to be fascinating to relive that as well. So that's coming your way tomorrow. Um, thanks for your company today. If you've enjoyed it, do tell your friends. And we'll be back again tomorrow with another tennis podcast. 